The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptize you with water. But one more powerful than I will come, the throngs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquestionable fire. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This is the word of God for the world. Today is the celebration of the birthday of our Lord. I grew up in a Baptist church, and I never heard that uh, there was a special day to remember the birthday of Jesus. But I think it's worth remembering. Mark says, Mark, by the way, is the first of the Gospels to be written. Mark begins it by saying, The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And what does he follow that with? The baptism of Jesus. Not with the birth, but with the baptism of Jesus. We find that the baptism of Jesus is recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels. But the story of the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem and Mary and Joseph not finding a place in room in the inn and having to go to a stable and have the baby Jesus and place him in a manger, that is found in only one of the Gospels. It's not in the other three. And the one where the wise men came, they see a star, they're led by a star, and they come to Bethlehem and find Jesus in a house. That's in only one of the Gospels, not in the other three. The story of Jesus is not a static story, so that we find a biography and all of the things are laid out just so. It's a developing story. People still tell the story in terms of what Jesus has meant to them. There are great insights in these stories. The fact that they're only one gospel does not mean they aren't important because they tell us something significant about Jesus. For instance, Charles talked about the Epiphany last Sunday. The wise men coming is generally referred to as Epiphany, the manifestation of the gospel to the Gentiles, the wise men from the East, from another culture, from another nationality, all this 
and the gospel had come to them. So this is something worth celebrating, Epiphany. But Epiphany isn't a one-time experience. The wise men came and, and we saw it. Here it is. We know what it is. The manifestation of Jesus and the gospel to all people comes in stages for most people. Even for Jesus, it may have come a bit of a... You know, Jesus, we are told in the Gospel of Luke, which is the only Gospel that tells anything about Jesus from the time He was born until He was baptized at age 30. It says that He was taken by His parents to Jerusalem, to the temple. And then after that experience, they went home and it says that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. To me, that's important. If we are to identify with Jesus, He didn't come full-blown. He increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. I'm reminded of that when I think of the story of the Syrophoenician woman who had a a sick child, and she wanted Jesus to heal. And she pled and pled, and he, Jesus ignored her. And finally she pled so much that he had to do something, and he said, it's not right to give the children's food to the dogs. Jesus said that? And she said, but even the dogs get the crumbs which fall from the master's table. And when he said that, the woman's child was healed. Jesus had a growing experience there, I believe. We're told that he increased in wisdom and in stature. If we believe that, you know, it's in the Bible. We believe the Bible, don't we? So he increased in wisdom and stature. So it wasn't a one-time experience. And take Peter. Peter, who was probably the closest of the disciples. It took him a while, even after the death and resurrection of Christ, to realize that the gospel was for all people, and not just for the circumcised Jews. The Apostle Paul said that, I withstood him to his face because he was wrong about being open to all people. But Peter had an experience in, on a rooftop in Joppa when he was taking a nap one afternoon. And this table of all kind of foods, he had this dream and saw a table of all kind of foods and a voice saying, take and eat. But there were a lot of non-kosher food there. And he said, I'd never eat anything that was common or unclean. And the voice of God came and said, what I have cleansed, don't you dare call common or unclean. And about that time he woke up and somebody had come from a centurion named Cornelius who was not a 
circumcised Jew and wanted to know more about the gospel and wanted Peter to come and tell him about it. Peter realized the significance of that dream and he said, God has told me not to call what he has cleansed common or unclean. And so he went and realized that the gospel could come to Gentiles as well. Of course, in the the reading from the Acts of the Apostles today, we find that the gospel had been received by Samaritans. They were somewhat related to the Jews, but they were really considered as outcasts. But we're told that Peter and John were sent from Jerusalem to see these new Christians who were Samaritans. They were different from the people Peter had been ministering to originally, but they had received the gospel. Epiphany was not a one-time instantaneous experience. We continue to have these epiphanies, I hope. Here in Providence, we're talking about reaching out to others, people who aren't like us. Well, I know I ought to talk about how Providence is reaching out to others, but if I could just share a little bit this morning about how some of my own experience, uh, if you read the bulletin, you've noticed that uh, I was the founding pastor of a church that's celebrating its 60th anniversary shortly, first, first weekend in March, and I had a lot of experiences during those 30 years that I was pastor there, first 30 years of the church, it's been 30 years since I left, I'm hoping I'll be able to go back and celebrate with them, there aren't many people left who were there for that first service, in fact one of them just died this past week and he was one of the others I think because on the first Sunday we had services a couple came with uh, a four-year-old son who had down syndrome you're familiar with that I guess and uh, I hadn't had a lot of experience with it but we were glad to have them here but over the 30 years that I was pastor, Tom Lee became a very important part of that church. He was one of the most exuberant people in the congregation, exuberant about so many things. When the time came that he wanted to be baptized, one of the members said, well, Tom doesn't really understand it fully. And I said, who understands it fully? <laughs> Tom couldn't answer all the questions that we ask people sometimes. But he loved the Lord, and he loved Jesus, and he loved the congregation. He loved Twinbrook Baptist Church. He was one of the most faithful members of that church. During these 60 years, he, 60, he was 64 years old when he passed away last week. 
They're going to have a memorial service. I wish I could be there. Because he was very important to that congregation. I've got a feeling the, congregate, the sanctuary is going to be packed for his service. He wasn't always the most tactful person in the world. He was very honest. When I took my bride, Joan Yarborough, back, we'd been married for a little while. And some of you know, or maybe I'm confessing sins here or whatever, but I'm divorced. <laughs> and he knew the, divorce, the, the wife from whom I was divorced. And when he met Joan, he said, I like the other Mrs. Lynch. <laughs> I wish you hadn't said that, but <laughs> but I still love Tom, and he was he was, a, he was one of the others who was very dear to us. And over the years, we had so many developmentally challenged members of that church. I remember one who uh, became very important in the life of the church, uh, Lisa Hare. And uh, she had responsibilities during the Sunday school service, uh, Sunday school session. One of the things she would do would be to ring the bell when 15 minutes before the worship service so they would know that it was time to end. Well, we had a, an outstanding leader from the American Baptist Convention with us, and he was leading all of the combined adult classes, had about... 75, I guess, in the combined adult classes, and was going to preach at the service. And the service, the class was running a little over because they were engaged in a lot of question and answer. And about uh, 10 minutes after the bell rang and the class hadn't dismissed, she stepped in and said, Time's up! So our guest minister said, I guess time is up. <laughs> but she was such an important part of that church, and she's passed away. We had so many people like that that I was glad that our church was a place that they could feel loved and accepted and a part of the congregation. Another other, and it was more of an other then than it is now, was just women. Sixty years ago, particularly for Southern Baptist, women were the other. They believed what Paul said. Women ought to stay quiet in church. If they want to know anything, they ask their husbands when they go home. That's in the Bible. Some people said, God said it. Uh, I believe it. Or the Bible said it, rather. The Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. That's the way some people felt about the women in the church. We started off, women were going to be a part of every committee in the church. Women were going to do this, that, and the other. In fact, uh, we had a woman as chairman of the deacons. And when the D.C. Baptist Convention announced a, a deacons retreat, encouraged all deacons, deacons to come, she called up to make reservations. And they said, oh, this is just for deacons. 
And she said, I'm chairman of the deacons at our church. And she said, well, women can't be deacons. She said, well, we are. But anyway, she couldn't go. But Now, that wouldn't be a, an issue at Providence Baptist. <laughs> African-Americans is another thing when we reached out. We had so many people, African-Americans, some from Africa, but most of them from America. And uh, they were some of the best leaders in the church. The elected, the top elected leader in our congregation was the moderator. And we had several African-American men and women who were elected as moderator. We reached out to immigrants. Or they reached out to us, one or the other, because we had immigrants who, from various places, one couple from Taiwan, from India. In fact, the man, the man from India became the moderator of the church as well. Uh, refugees. We sponsored refugees from Vietnam. We had some that we didn't sponsor, but we became involved in. One of them was a Catholic priest that didn't feel like he was getting the kind of attention from the church that he ought to have, and so he turned to us. And uh, He was there with his sister and brother-in-law and uh, two would-be nephews, I guess. We provided a lot of services for them. I remember one time our, we got a call and they wanted to know if somebody could take their son to the doctor. And our assistant minister said, I'd be glad to. Lo and behold, when he went to pick them up with his Volkswagen bug, Three adults wanted to go and two children. <laughs> Lo and behold, he got them all in the car. He kept telling me he couldn't take all of them, but they got in and he took them. We had a lot of great experiences with those. We reached out to the poor. Before there was a place like Manna or anything like that, we decided that there ought to be a place to collect food to distribute to people who were in need. And so we set aside one of the Sunday school classrooms as a food storeroom, and we collected food and had it filled with, with food. And, oh, sorry. I apologize for that. But... Uh, we started getting, getting food and all that, and finally some of the other churches decided to cooperate with us, and we became the food storehouse for that community. And later on, manna was formed. You're familiar with manna. They took it over, not what we were doing, but one of the members of our church became the executive director of manna because we had reached out, one of the first churches to reach out uh, to others. We reached out to other faith groups across the street from our church or down the street a little bit was uh, 
a Jewish synagogue. I should say synagogue. I don't know many synagogues that aren't Jewish, but... Uh, <laughs> we developed a very close relationship with the, the synagogue and the rabbis there. We would invite the rabbis to preach at our services. They would invite me to preach at the synagogue. Uh, when they had high holy days, we invited them. They had, they were still in the building process, and we invited them to use our facilities for uh, their youth and children's activities. And uh, I remember we had a cross at the front of the sanctuary. And we took the cross down, and that caused some consternation among some of our people saying, you're ashamed of the cross? And I said, I thought it was a very Christian thing to do, to accept our guests and not make them feel uncomfortable. We had the kind of relationship that the rabbi one time invited my family to come to their home for a Seder meal which we enjoyed very much. I wasn't sure about our oldest son, who was about probably 12 at the time. You know, they have served wine at the Seder, and you have a glass of wine, and you take a sip for this and a sip for that all during the service. Came for the first sip, and he drank the whole thing down. <laughs> He said, I thought it was like communion in our church and you emptied the cup. They refilled it and he took sips after that. <laughs> we developed a relationship with the Catholic Church. Uh, we even had several Catholic priests speak at our church and they invited me to speak not to, at a mass, but at, uh, to the men's group. And uh, we felt like it was important to have these kind of contacts. And uh, had a Muslim come and speak to our adult classes one time. But then things have happened since I left. By the way, there was an article in a Washington paper about uh, the new pastor of the church and all that. And she talked about the uh, founding pastor and uh, some of the visions that he had. He, she said he talked about the church as being a fellowship of the concerned and this kind of thing. And they added in there, uh, the founding pastor said, and he is still alive. <laughs> I was glad to hear that. <laughs> I was sort of a brash young 26-year-old when I started the church. And as I look back on it now, I don't think any 26-year-old has any business starting a church. <laughs> but I didn't have that much sense then. And I went ahead and did it. But, uh, but anyway, one of the things that has happened more recently is that we have a pastor who has made a strong uh, outreach to the gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender community 
LGBT, isn't it? And uh, the interesting thing happened. Right across from our church was a high school. The high school recently established a gay, straight alliance club. And a group was coming to picket the school for allowing a straight gay club in the church, in the, in the school. And our pastor, or the pastor of the church where I had been the founding pastor, organized a group of people to bear witness against the uh, protesters. And they hung rainbow symbols out of the windows of the church, the Christian that faced the school. All of the windows had some of these colors coming from them as a witness to the acceptance of our, our church. And it got some coverage in the local newspapers and also uh, in the uh, Global Baptist News, Baptist, I forget what, the only uh, internet, any way you can get it. I remember seeing a picture of it. But anyway, I have been pleased at the way the members of the, ch of the church have accepted this. I'll have to admit that many years ago, like 60 years ago, this would have been a hard thing for me. I didn't really understand gay and lesbian, much less transgender. I gradually came to accept it and understand it. I still have trouble understanding transgender. But I went to a church in Nashville where I met my wife that had a transgender person. And that was a new experience, and I began to appreciate it. And then I became the interim pastor of a church in Ithaca, New York, that had a large number of not only gay and lesbian, but transgender people. And I saw dedicated Christians, and I said, the Spirit has come upon these people. How can I say they're not Christians and they're not welcome? If the Spirit is moving, some of these people would travel 60 miles on Sunday just to get to our church. And they'd come faithfully because there weren't a lot of churches that accepted them. So I was glad that the First Baptist Church of Ithaca accepted them, made them feel loved. So it was a, a great experience for me. Being in that church was one of the greatest experiences that I've had. Well, what I'm saying is that God didn't stop speaking when the last verse of Revelation was written. God still speaks. And God still calls us to be more open to new insights that God has for us. God still speaks. Epiphanies still come. There are others 
to whom God would have us reach out. Let us pray. O oh God, open us to your spirit and help us to see that your spirit is working in others and help us to accept and love them through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, my father was uh, an unusual person. He uh, didn't go to the first grade in school until he was adult, married, had children, and felt called to the ministry. And he felt he ought to learn to read and write if he was going to be a minister. And so for a while, his first wife could read and write, and she would read the scripture to him. He would memorize it, and on Sunday, he would get up and hold the Bible in front of him, <laughs> pretend he was reading, and he would recite the scripture. But his wife and children died during the flu epidemic in 19, what was that, 14, 15, somewhere back there. I wasn't, I can't remember back that far, but uh, anyway, they, they died and uh, he decided that he needed to go away to a boarding school to learn to read and write. And so he went to a, a boarding school that Baptist had down in the, I can't remember where it was now, but uh, he got so he could read and do some of these things, but somewhere along the line, he ran into some professors from Southern Baptist Seminary who opened him his eyes to a new understanding of Scripture and the Gospel and uh, introduced him to scholars who were very significant, but also uh, he was past. by the way, he was pastor of, uh, this is more you want to hear, I'll try to make it short. He was pastor of a church in a cotton mill village, which is not uh, your height of uh, intellectual stimulation, and where racial feelings were pretty strong in those days. This was back in uh, the 30s, 40s. Somewhere along the line, and, and he was a very prejudiced person at the time, but he went to a meeting and somebody spoke giving a different message from what he had understood and talked about the openness to all people. And my father said he got so upset with it that we were supposed to accept black people and all that, that he got up and stormed out of the meeting. And then he takes you, he used to take me to the 
place where he was walking and he went across a, a bridge on this street. And he said something just struck him. And he heard a voice saying, You're wrong. And that changed his life. He went out and he began having interracial contacts and reaching out to people. And in this little cotton mill church, he started having uh, interracial fellowship meetings, he called, where they invite Caucasians, African Americans, and American Indians to come, maybe get about a dozen, and they fixed the church up so we could have, have places for people to s spend the night and have meals and all that, and they'd come for three or four days. And at nights they'd have worship services where the whole community was invited, which was something new in that Cotton Mill Village. Somebody asked him, how did you get the deacons to prove it? He said, I didn't ask them. <laughs> said, said, God told me to do it. And if God tells me to do it, I don't have to go to the deacons. <laughs> so anyway, he, without an education, he did lead in a lot of these things and had a profound influence on me. I think he wishes that he had a seminary education and all that, but uh, he did a lot of things. That's more, I didn't mean to go on, I'm sorry. Thank you very much. Amen.